What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. You're listening to The Exchange. Here's today's show. And we'll be talking more about Crocs. Scott, thanks. Hi, everybody. I'm Kelly Evans. Here's what's ahead on The Exchange. Another rebound in stocks. The Nasdaq, the biggest gainer, is it tries for a four-session win streak. The Russells are up 2.5%. We'll look at what's prompting this change in sentiment and where the best opportunities are. Plus, we can't have a recession if the jobs market stays this tight. But will it? We'll look ahead to tomorrow's big jobs report and what the uptick in layoff announcements means. And oil bouncing back strongly today, but commodities have been creamed lately. We'll get you the stats, the story, and the trade on oil, metals, and more. But first, Dom Chu has our latest markets. The, mon- the numbers are bouncing back across the board. But, of, co- of course, we've had a sell-off in many ways across many parts of the market, Kelly. And the stock market notwithstanding, you can take a look at the numbers right now. The Dow Industrial is up 270 points, about almost one full percentage point gain here. 38.94 is the last trade for the S&P 500 overall as it disappears a little bit. It's up 48 points. This is near the highs of the session. At the highs, we're up right now roughly 51 points. At the lows, we were still up about 13. To give you an idea of the trading range so far today, up one and a quarter percent in the NASDAQ. As Kelly points out, the real outperformer up about 2% right now, 229 points for the composite index, 11,591 the last trade there. One big reason for that NASDAQ outperformance has, of course, to do with that tech-heavy nature of the index. Semiconductors specifically are standing out today after Samsung and South Korea overnight reported some results that were better than some analysts expected. The forecast, though, for the current quarter, revenues and profits coming in better as well. That's helping to lift semiconductor chip makers across the globe, especially out there in Asia. But here in the U.S., you've got On Semiconductor, KLA Corp., Lamb Research, Advanced Micro, Qualcomm, among the U.S. traded semiconductor stocks that are catching a bit on the back of that forecast from Samsung. All up, you can see there, roughly 5 to even 9% on some of these. On semiconductor at one point today, the best performer in the S&P. And then also part of that tech-heavy trade. The three most important stocks of the NASDAQ and the S&P 500 are Apple, Microsoft, and Alphabet. They are the three most heavily weighted stocks there. On a year-to-date basis, you can kind of see here with the market bottoms that we saw over the course of the last month or so, the rebound that we've seen has been pretty significant. For Apple, Kelly, we're up about 13% from the lows that we've seen over the course of the last couple of weeks. From Microsoft, up 11% off those lows and up 15% for Alphabet, the parent company of Google. So as people talk about dip buying, they are starting to see some signs of that in those mega cap tech names. We'll see whether that's a trend that continues, Kelly. I'll send things back over to you. All right, Tom, for now, thank you very much. So with stocks aiming for their first four-day winning streak since late March, is this the relief rally investors have been waiting for? Senior markets commentator Michael Santoli has more from the NYSE. Hi, Mike. 
Hey, Kelly. Yeah, I think relief is leading to some resilience, and I would even date it back to the week before last. I don't think it's just a four-day story. Uh, we obviously were up almost 6% week before last. Gave back less than half of it last week. Last week felt awful because it was all about the recession mantra, but look at the way it kind of sets up right here. Uh, it doesn't look terrible. We haven't slipped back to those lows. In fact, on an intraday basis, we were lower than we are today back on May 20th, so that's what, six, seven weeks ago. Uh, so clearly there's been some effort uh, to, to pick up the pace a little bit on the buy. Now, is this just Lucy holding the football in place till she pulls it away again? This downtrend line, pretty significant. Uh, some other kind of various touch points above the index level right now on the, on the chart, around 4,000. That's where you start to say maybe this is something more than another one of these fleeting bounces. And then uh, Don was talking about the NASDAQ outperformance just on a month-to-date basis, NASDAQ 100 relative to the S&P. You see that. That's obviously been a harder-hit area, down 30% from the highs. It's a high beta move right now. You're buying the stuff that seems riskier, that was beaten down the most. That's not necessarily a formula for new leadership in the market, but it shows you, you know, maybe a little bit of short-term normalization of risk appetites. With bond yields coming down, I always say uh, the aggregate risk budget of the market kind of goes up at least uh, at least a little bit incrementally, Kel. And here's uh, one for you on the sentiment side, Mike. According to Bespoke, this is one of the longest yep. stretches we've ever had, five weeks now, with less than a quarter of AAII respondents bullish on the market. So I think they said it's the longest stretch since 1993. Yeah, absolutely. If you're making a, a pro and con list in favor or against equities right now, sentiment has been in the pro column for quite a long time. At least what people are saying and at least how professional investors are positioned, that's really been all defense for quite a while. So I do think it's encouraging. Uh, it definitely would seem to limit the downside if you look at how history works on these things, but it can go for prolonged periods of time. It was a trap in 2008. Let's hope we're not back in a situation like that. Yeah, for sure. Mike, for now, thank you, our Michael Santoli. And my next guest says we are starting to see signs of inflation easing and the economy heading in the right direction. He also says the markets will be meaningfully higher by year end, so the time to buy in is now. Let's welcome in David Katz. He's Chief Investment Officer at Matrix Asset Management. David, you've been consistent on this lately, especially since the last time we spoke. Um, what do you make of the market's early snapback here? What do you think's driving it? Oh, we think the market is seeing some signs that maybe inflation is starting to break. We think that they're going to see more signs over the next few weeks. And as that happens, people are going to be a little bit less worried about the Fed's hawkishness for 2023. And that could drive stocks a lot higher. So we think you're in the very early stages. You're not going to know that you're in a recovery until the market's 20 percent higher. You just talked about a lot of the bank stocks being 10 to 15 percent higher already. Uh, the, the key, we think, for investor success is to take that six to 12 month approach. There are lots of great businesses out there at 11 to 14 times earnings. And even if those earnings come down a little bit, that's a very good price to be buying stock. Why are the markets hating on the Fed so much? I mean, they treat this hawkishness like it's last decade all over again, and it's not. Look at how much it's helped financial conditions broadly inflation since their 75 basis point rate hike just three weeks ago. Well, people are worried if the Fed really goes through with the hawkishness that they're sounding, that they consistently raise rates for the next 12 to 18 months, that it's going to really hurt the economy. And when everybody is negative, they're saying it's going to really hurt the economy, but it's not even going to stop inflation. So the glass is empty. Uh, we don't think that's the case. We think that the Fed raising rates is actually slowing the economy down. It's slowing the housing market down. It's slowing the labor market down. And it's slowing commodity prices down. That's what the Fed wants. They don't want to talk about being successful yet because it's really, really early on. But ideally, you want the Fed to not be as hawkish next year 
but still have the economy slow and inflation slowed. And we think that that's what's playing out. Yeah, I mean, you're going to get a slowdown one way or the other, maybe a recession one way or the other, but you're only going to bring inflation down consistently if you're hawkish enough to really convince people it's over. I mean, like you said, we're not going to know for a little while still, but I'm thinking about the labor market. You know, tomorrow morning, the jobs report, jobless claims remain pretty strong. Okay, layoff announcements are up, but the data points, I mean, the JOLTS report was incredibly strong. Wage pressures are still there. How does a strong labor market translate for you into stock picks or investment ideas if we have that bucking uh, what might be continued declines or negative or weak reports in real GDP? Well, we think the labor markets are going to be strong, but they're going to be a little bit less inflationary over the next six months. In terms of it and our outlook, our outlook is that the economy is actually doing relatively okay, and you can buy stocks because we're not going to go into a deep recession. Even if we have a definitional recession of two negative GDP quarters, uh, we think that the economy is doing well, consumers are doing well, businesses are doing well. So we look at that in our outlook when we're saying you really want to be buying stocks here, and we're very comfortable buying technology companies, we're comfortable buying consumer discretionary companies, companies that are a little bit more uh, focused or, or leveraged to the economy. Like We like FedEx right here. They had a very good update uh, earlier last month or late last month. Uh, it's under 10 times earnings, very focused management on profitability. And if we don't go into a deep recession, FedEx is a great buy. Yeah, FedEx is a provocative idea. What else in consumer discretionary? There can be a lot of different kinds of things in there. Um, and what, if, what would you do with consumer staples, which had been one of the hiding spots, one of the most popular trades lately? So we had had consumer staples and we're using that as a source of funds because they've done exceptionally well. They've done their job. This is not the time to start playing defense. And we think that if we're right and the market comes back, the consumer staples are going to do a lot less well. Uh, another consumer discretionary account that we uh, stock that we like is Booking Holdings. Uh, their business has been very good. They are a reopening play and you're buying them at under 14 times next year's earnings. Uh, we think a reasonable economy, the, the uh, business does well, the stock should do great. The stock is down about a third this year, even though the business is relatively good. People are traveling. Yeah, so booking holdings, FedEx, and in general, you say declining inflation is generally uh, very bullish for the stock market. Let me ask you about housing, where we've seen the mortgage rates correct by almost a full point from the highs right now. Who knows if we'll stay here, but the stocks are at, you know, shockingly cheap forward P.E. numbers. Any thoughts? Uh, we don't have a great conviction on housing. We think that housing prices are going to start to slow down in terms of their increases. We think that the housing companies uh, can start to uh, continue building and they should make good money. We don't have a great conviction on the stocks, but probably if we're right in our outlook, the housing stock should be fine. We just have a much higher conviction to buy other areas of the market. Okay, final one, and perhaps it's in the same vein. You mentioned booking is one of your favorites. The airlines have also done very poorly lately. Um, would those be a buy for you? Even maybe the cruise lines? I mean, I can't imagine those debt levels are something you'd be comfortable with. Uh, you're, you're exactly right. Absolutely not. We try to focus on companies that are going to add value over time uh, and do okay during a bad economy. So uh, the cruise lines, you know, very, very leveraged. Uh, we, we just don't want to play that. Uh, same thing with the airlines. You know, we'd much prefer bookings because even when business is slow, they're making a lot of money. When business is slow for the airlines, they lose a lot of money. We don't like the airlines cost structure in terms of their labor costs. Uh, we worry about uh, oil prices, even though we think ultimately you get relief. So much better places to put money. We like the financials a lot better. Uh, we like the FANG stocks better. We like a company like TE Connectivity better. Uh, so lots of places. 
Um, you know, the, the, the airlines might do well, but we just think there are lower risk ways to play this market. And I think that's an important point that you're bullish in what you acknowledge is a slowing growth environment. You want stocks that can do well in a slowing growth environment. It doesn't mean recession. That, that's exactly the case. So we don't like the 50 times earnings companies that are out there that are depending on really ultra high growth. What we like is a slow growth uh, environment and companies that are going to still grow their earnings. And if you can buy them at 14 times earnings, you're going to do fine. All right. David Katz, we'll leave it there. Thanks for your time. Thanks a lot. Have a great day. Good to see you. You too. David Katz with Matrix Advisors. Coming up, Bitcoin higher today as it tries to get up above that $20,000 range pretty firmly. It's doing a pretty good job. Up next, how crypto miners are faring lately and why they're actually adding to the selling pressure on Bitcoin. Plus, oil and gas, clean energy, metals and mining, all of those areas are higher today, but still well off their recent highs. What's driving the action in these three commodity categories? We've got the stats, the story, and the trades. And as we head to break, let's get a check on the markets with the Russell, the strongest performer today, up 2.5%. The Dow in the green, although underperforming, it's still up 222 points. Look at the 10-year, it's barely back above 3%. We'll be right back. This is The Exchange on CNBC. The market doesn't joke around, so why would you? Get serious. Choose Tasty Trade. Tasty Trade gives you the tools you need to make smarter moves. Dig into data with advanced charting, track profit accurately with order chain trackers, see risk clearly with curve analysis, and trade with low-capped commissions, stocks, options, futures, and more. All on one platform. No wonder serious traders choose Tasty Trade. Join the club, genius. Tasty Trading is a registered broker-dealer and member of FINRA and SIPC. People today can spend half their lives over 50. So it's good to be financially ready for what's important to you as you get older, like a family vacation. Or starting your dream business. Welcome to Connie's Coffee. How may I help you? AARP's trusted financial tools can help you plan for whatever your future holds. That's why the younger you are, the more you need AARP. Start planning today at aarp.org slash money tools. Welcome back. Bitcoin up about 3% today, but still trading far below its all-time high of nearly $69,000. And as we've been seeing the crypto ecosystem crumble, miners have been no exception. Kate Rooney joins us with more. Hi, Kelly. Yeah, sources I've been talking to call this a perfect storm of issues in this part of the crypto market. Crypto miners are those firms running high-powered computers to create new Bitcoin. The industry really took off during crypto's bull market not so much this year. Take a look at these charts. You've got Core Scientific, Hut 8, Marathon Digital, Riot Blockchain, down 80% in some cases. The first issue here is borrowing. Bitcoin mining is really capital intensive. They've had to spend big on hardware and took out loans to compete. In many cases, those were backed by either Bitcoin holdings or those mining rigs. Borrowing from other crypto companies right now is not an option with this liquidity crunch going on. Rates are also going up. And the Wall Street banks are not an option either. They've really avoided lending to crypto companies altogether. Then there's higher energy prices, making it more expensive to run these facilities. And you've got a drop in Bitcoin prices, hurting margins. The miners now hold an estimated 1.8 million individual Bitcoin. That's according 
to Glassnode. And these issues have forced some of the companies to sell that crypto in order to stay afloat. It's been seen as a potential drag on prices. For example, Core Scientific sold most of its Bitcoin holdings back in June, cashing out around $167 million worth. Data from CryptoQuant shows these firms selling at record levels in June. I'm told by one source that distressed Bitcoin miners are now being shopped around. We may see more M&A and consolidation in the space. Kelly. Wow, Kate, thank you. Now, on the heels of Voyager's bankruptcy, the market is waiting to see who might be the next domino to fall in the crypto world as it reels from Three Arrow Capital salt insolvency. Not only has 3AC's collapse forced Voyager Digital into bankruptcy, it caused BlockFi to nearly collapse before being saved by Sam Bankman Fried and FTX. It has creditors Deribit and Blockchain.com going after 3AC in court and caused industry giant Genesis to scramble to limit the damage from their exposure. Crypto investor Mike Novogratz blaming the current price collapse firmly on overleveraging and had some harsh words for the firms involved. 30 to 18,000 was this deleveraging of a system that was far too leveraged. And, you know, you know, shame on lots of the players for running, you know, what is just irresponsible, not just leverage, but asset liability mismatched, taking consumer deposits in, you know, overnight and lending them out as long as three or four years. Novogratz also added he thinks we're 90% through this deleveraging process now. On that note, let's bring in Frank Chaparro. He's director of news at The Block. Frank, it's good to see you. And let's just un sort of unpackage this piece by piece, starting with what Kate Rooney said about the miners, a surprising source of selling pressure. Yeah, I mean, they're part of this overlevered story, right? They had to, uh, they borrowed funds to buy a lot of these mining rigs and were like many traders over levered and now with bitcoin declining they kind of have to navigate this this broader deleveraging um but it's a it's a brutal market i've never seen this amount of leverage sucked out of the system in such a short span of time and right now the traders i talk to say that they have a lot of counterparties that have failed to your point earlier or we don't even know what their status is in terms of their exposure and the degree to which they've engaged with with three arrows. Um, so it's pretty, it's a pretty cautious period right now. Yeah, it feels to me a little bit like the spring of 2008, where, you know, you had the collapse of Bear Stearns, but then this kind of quiet period where everything was fine over the summer and then another wave of selling pressure hit. What are people you talk to saying about the way it feels? Well, I think it's a big wake up call for people who are in the market, right? You had these firms that and I remember when I came on a few months ago, you asked the very sharp question of where are these yields coming from? Frankly, we should have been asking that question um, harder and more to these firms that you have Voyager, right, which had a 23 to 1 assets to equity ratio. 60% of their loan book was concentrated in three arrows. And so it looked nice when you had the juicy yields, but behind the scenes in the background was just a huge amount of irresponsible risk-taking to, to sort of echo on, on Mike Novogratz there. And now we're all asking these questions. And I think the, the question of trust and whether or, not, whether or not we can trust certain counterparties is at the forefront in a way that it's never been, at least during this cycle. Where, what do you think FTX's moves are from here? I mean, is this, are they in this for the very long run or should we expect them to start shaking things up even more uh, in the months ahead? Well, I mean, they've got about, at least according to Sam Bankman-Fried, $2 billion to snap up, 
distressed assets. So I imagine they're going to still be in the background. They have their own issues to worry about in terms of getting this CFTC approval for their futures uh, offering here in the United States. So I think they're going to sort of, they're balancing between being the the sort of quote unquote lender of last resort and also trying to navigate these murky regulatory waters at, at to, to an extent the this sort of demise of many of these firms is a black eye for FTX among regulators. You have, um, you know, it was just reported a few moments ago that FDIC is looking into Voyager's marketing on on its product, which mm-hmm. it it kind of misled investors that their funds, USDC funds, or excuse me, USD funds, were FDIC insured, which they totally weren't. They were only insured. Uh, in the event of their bank running into issues, not Voyager itself. So I think um, FTX is in a is in probably the best spot, but there's going to be downstream um, reputational damage that this sure. blow-up causes. Yeah, here's what Voyager said in 2019. In the rare event your USD funds are compromised due to the company or our banking partner's failure, you are guaranteed a full reimbursement up to $250,000. It's embarrassing. It's honestly embarrassing that they did that. Um, and and frankly, a lot of these companies in this market have misrepresented what they are to the end client. Look at Celsius talking about how they are the unbank or unbank yourself with Celsius. If you look at what's happening behind the scenes to, to get those yields, they're doing things that bank do, uh, that banks do. OTC derivatives, lending, all of these things, that, that is a bank. And, and unfortunately, it wasn't communicated to customers uh, that they were doing all these risky things. They just kind of wanted to, you know. Yeah. Well, you know what they just, say, you can never judge a man till his death. And in a way, I wonder if regulators are taking as much, many of the data points as we're getting through the collapse here to actually tell them how to regulate this entire space going forward, uh, for better or for worse. Frank, we'll leave it there. Thanks for your time. Thank you. Frank Shaparo with The Block today. Still ahead, this stock is off to the races on pace for its best week since March after one analyst said it could climb 50% from here. We'll reveal the name next. Plus, how much more are passengers willing to pay up to board a plane these days? The answer may surprise you, and maybe it won't. As we head to break, here's a look at the Dow heat map, where we have two out of three names in the green right now, Caterpillar, Boeing, and Intel leading the way. We're back after this. Welcome to the Canva guided meditation for stress at work. Impending deadline? Generate Canva presentations in seconds. So fast. Brainstorm got too big? Summarize with AI in a click. Writer's block? Release with Canva Magic Write. Magical. Stress less and save time at canva.com. Designed for work. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively, FedEx.
Welcome back to The Exchange, where we have markets in the green again today. The Dow was up 310 at the highs. We're about 100 points off that level. The Nasdaq up nearly 2%. Now, consumer staples are the worst performing sector today, with Colgate, Kimberly-Clark, Clorox, Philip Morris, P&G all in the red. Colgate, one of the worst names in the S&P, down more than 3%. Now, here's the mystery chart we mentioned into the break. It's Crocs, whose shares are climbing again. You heard John Najarian talking about it last hour. Loop Capital upgraded the stock to buy earlier this week. They say Crocs could surge 50% to $75 a share. We're currently at 57, up nearly 10%. Stock having its best week since March, up 18%. In fact, the meme stocks generally are hot today. Look at Bed Bath & Beyond shares, up 25%, granted to just over $5 today, after filing showed a number of insider purchases, including 50,000 shares by the new interim CEO who replaced uh, Mark Triton. GameStop up nearly 12% after a four-for-one stock split. It goes into effect on July 22nd. GME is still currently around 132, so divide that by four. And AMC is getting in on the action as well. It's higher despite Citi reiterating its sell rating on the stock and cutting its price target from six to five dollars a share. That prompted a 12% surge today to over 14. And don't look now, but Beyond Meat is quietly on pace for its fourth straight week of gains, its longest since June of last year. This week's 21% gain is its best week since March. This stock, though, as the shareholders know, is down 80% from its high a year ago, and it's still trading around $31 a share, even with today's 7% gain. Let's get to Bertha Coombs now for a CNBC News update. Bertha? Hey, Kelly. Good afternoon. Here's your CNBC News update at this hour. The creator of the popular Yu-Gi-Oh! franchise was found dead floating off the coast of Okinawa. Japanese officials say he was found alone and wearing snorkeling gear. He was just 60 years old. A Detroit police officer was killed after confronting a man with an assault-style weapon last night. According to the Detroit police chief, the officer and his partner responded to a call of a man firing a weapon. And upon their arrival, the suspect fired in their direction. One officer was struck while his partner returned fire, killing the suspect. The officer was later pronounced dead at a hospital. And fin whales, once nearly extinct, have returned in huge numbers off the coast of Antarctica. Scientists found a higher concentration of fin whales there compared to other regions known for sightings, including off the coast of California. And tonight on the news, the father of the Highland Park shooter is speaking out. Hear what he had to say about his son and more on the Shepard Smith Show tonight at 7 p.m. Eastern. Kelly? All right, Bertha, thank you very much. Still ahead, oil is back above 100 bucks today, but has the bull run in energy been firmly broken? Next, we'll drill down on three key categories, the standouts in each, including this stock, and how to trade them. We are back in two minutes. Don't go anywhere. Welcome back, everybody. Commodities reversing course today. They're higher after two rough down days. Crude oil back above 100 bucks a barrel even. Let's get a look at the movers across multiple complexes and, importantly, how to trade them from here. Let's start with the traditional oil and gas names that are helping lead today's market rally. Pippa Stevens is here with the story and the standouts for each of these sectors for us. And Victoria Green is G-squared private wealth CIO, and she joins us with her picks and trades today. Welcome to you both. Pippa, kick things off for us. Yeah, Kelly. Well, energy stocks are higher today as oil and gas bounce back. 
But the sector is still down more than 20 percent in the last month. And the group has really gotten caught up in the broad market selling. It was a standout for so long. And so some of this is to cover losses elsewhere in the market. Looking forward, two names to watch are Exxon and Occidental. Exxon giving an upbeat outlook for second quarter earnings driven by high prices for petroleum products like gas. The company said refining margins set to increase by more than $5 billion. The stock is down 18 percent since hitting a record back in June. Now turning to Occidental, this is a Berkshire pick and they've been adding to the position. The stock is the top performer within energy, more than doubling this year. And to put that in context, Valero is the second top performer, up a measly 40 percent in comparison. So Oxy Kelly could be a victim of its own success. Yeah, up a measly 40 percent is exactly how energy has been this year. All right, Victoria, where would you guide investors in this space? Right. I still think it's a space to like, you know, $100 oil is very sustainable. I don't think you're going to see the demand destruction till like 150. We tend to like and we're buyers of an Exxon. We're buyers of Devon Energy. We really like them in the EMP space. And we like Oxy and we're a buyer of this dip. You're talking about stocks that are going to just print cash in Q2, and especially something like a Devon with a fixed plus variable dividend. They're putting that cash back to shareholders. Oxy is starting their buybacks and dividends. You know, you're seeing these companies not really put as much into the ground as they are giving it back to shareholders and buybacks and dividends. Oxy's having to do a little bit of debt reduction, but obviously it's done quite well. It's got the Berkshire back- backing and the Warren Buffett seal of approval, and, and that obviously makes people feel pretty good about investing in that space. But I am a buyer of this dip. I don't think the energy rally's done. I think it needed to take a breather, but I think some of the demand destruction, and unless we hit like 150 a barrel, is a little less of a concern. Right, so you're still more worried about the upside than the downside here, especially back at 100 today. Let's leave it there then and pivot uh, to the renewable space where the solar and alternative names are also getting hit from a few key issues lately. It's not like they're benefiting from this rotation out of the traditional fossil fuel plays. Pippa, why are they lagging? Yeah, Kelly, well, they are higher today amid this broad strength that we're seeing across the market. But longer term, as you said, many of these names are still sharply lower. Supportive policies have failed to pass and higher rates make future profits less attractive. One group to watch is the residential home installers that Sunrun, Sonova and SunPower all up today, but in the red for the year. And they don't manufacture equipment and they have higher margins than large scale projects. And with utility rates jumping, the theory goes that rooftop solar becomes more attractive. But companies' cost of capital is rising, and we've heard that can be passed to consumers. But we'll get a better sense, Kelly, to the extent to which it can be passed along to consumers once earnings season starts. Yeah, very choppy year for that ETF, TAN, uh, altogether down about 2% since January. Victoria, do you like anything in the space? No, I'm a seller right now. I think you're also facing regulatory risk as well as potential of subsidies and tariff changes. I think there's a huge macro storm brewing. Um, the international solar market looks a little bit better. You know, Europe pivoting very hard with what's happening with Russia. But if you look at the U.S., you have the issue in California. You had Florida barely squeak by pulling back subsidies. And these companies are profitable because of these subsidies and tax rebates that they're getting and that their customers are getting. If you see a, a change in that, that completely changes the dynamic. Not to 
mention the discount rate and rates going up. I think it's going to grow. I think solar is going to be a place in the future. Um, but I think right now it's just a difficult market for them. And I think there's a lot of risk. You know, you, you saw what happened when California even just moderately proposed that they might change it. Uh, you saw that stocks tank. So I think right now I am not going long in that space and I'm a seller of solar still. And Pippa, you've been reporting about that, you know, following these developments. Why do you think the tide has turned when, if anything, now would seem like the time for policymakers, maybe with some extra stimulus cash lying around, to invest in precisely this this space? Yeah, well, it seems like, you know, the, the pessimism in the market around these names has just grown. And if there is going to be a rotation out of more risky, more growth areas of the market, it's going to hit this group especially hard. But, you know, the, the long term bulls, they say in 2020 was a really good year and we're still looking back to that. So 2021 was bad. 2022, not great by any means. But they say we're still at highs. And the, the long-term case is only more attractive with these volatile commodity prices. It's not only the high prices, it's the unpredictability around what prices will be. And so that's why renewable advocates say now is the time to switch over to solar and wind. Right. I mean, if they can stand on their own two feet without subsidies, that would obviously be the greatest case uh, in the longer run. All right. We'll leave that space for now then and pivot towards the commodities like copper and aluminum, which are coming off their worst quarter in decades now. The metals are finally catching a bid today. But Pippa, it has has been U-G-L-Y. Yeah, it has been really ugly and they are high today. But, you know, copper settled at the lowest level since November yesterday. So not not too high today to counteract that. And of course, that follows its worst quarter since 2011. And this after it hit a record high in March. So the downturn here has been very swift. Aluminum, meantime, coming off its worst three months since 2008. And this is all about recession fears June's ISM reading was the lowest in two years, and slow demand out of China isn't helping. Investors now actually hold the highest net short position in copper in more than two years. That's according to the CFTC. Stocks like U.S. Steel and Alcoa both down more than 50 percent from their 52-week highs this spring. And Berenberg saying today, Kelly, it's going to be a cruel summer for the miners. Hmm. All right, Victoria, I'm curious, which way do you break on this one? You buy them or you sell them? I'm a cautious buyer right here because I think, honestly, prices are going to stabilize. You saw that massive spike up, but it's wiped out any gains those metals had. And if you look at the balance sheet, I like Alcoa a lot better than I like U.S. Steel. They're aluminum focused. You have a very capped supply out of China of aluminum. I do think China is actually stimulating their economy and they're going to grow. Even if we slow down, I'm still thinking it's a mild recession. I think most of the damage and the pain is done. And if you look at what Alcoa has done to, to fix their company over the last five years, they've, they've streamlined their operations. They're down from something like 67 uh, different plants and facilities down to 32. They've got only three lines of businesses. They're actually printing a dividend now. These are all steps in the right direction. And I think aluminum prices, if you look at the commodity forward curve and where, what we're pricing in, it's a little bit more stable from here. So are we going to get these huge price swings back up? I don't think so. But I think even with stable prices at where these stocks are now trading, it's a much more attractive buy. Victoria, I'm just thinking about what everything you're saying from the Fed's point of view when I hear sort of maybe, you know, the oil and the commodities correction are behind us and they kind of level off from here. Well, maybe that's still going to be a little uncomfortably high. You know what I mean? 
Yeah, I don't think it's going to be very hard for inflation to come down. We are we are we do think it's peak inflation, but I think it's going to be plateaued. I mean, we're really excited because average gas prices is like what four seventy six today. Right. It's only moved down five percent from the highs. Oil's moved twenty percent off of the highs, and ninety to one hundred oil is very sustainable. If you look at the two thousand eight peak, you were talking about one hundred and fifty dollar oil. You know, we're not there yet. We've got to see what Russia does. There's a lot of macro factors in play in all these commodity markets. But I think if you look at it, inflation's sticky right now, and it's hard, and it's a very hard job the Fed has. They, they can't go drill for oil. They right. can't help with that, you know. And, and the problem with the free market is the refiners in the Gulf Coast are running, but we're exporting a lot more product down to Mexico and Latin America now because they lost Russian supply. So as this world rebalances, it's a painful rebalancing. And this isn't something that, you know, you can write a, an algorithm and it fixes itself in a day. You're talking about changing shipping and storage and light versus heavy crude. Sure. It's a very complex map to, to actually rebalance, and it's going to take a while. Well, I think you're making energy and Commodity investors feel a little better right now, but you're making me feel a little worse, frankly. It's going to be a tough, uh, tough situation Sorry, to get out of. I lost audio a little bit. Not sure what happened yeah. there. <laughs> it's all good. This has been great, Victoria. We appreciate your time today, Victoria Green with G Squared. And Pippa, thank you very much as well, our Pippa Stevens reporting. Up next, it's been a rough go for the casino and gaming stocks, but they're showing signs of life as well today. Contessa Brewer in Las Vegas with a look at what's driving the gains. Is this the start of a turnaround, Contessa? Well, you know what? Business is booming. Everywhere you see on the Las Vegas Strip, it's packed. So why isn't it being reflected in the stocks? I'm Contessa Brewer here on the Las Vegas Strip. Is this the time to bet on casino stocks? Coming up on The Exchange. Welcome back. Casinos are supposed to be a major reopening beneficiary, but instead the stocks have gotten slammed this year. MGM down 42% from its highs, Wynn down more than 50%. Sports betting names faring even worse, with DraftKings down more than 80% from the highs. But all three are moving higher today. Contessa Brewer is out in Las Vegas with what's behind the revival. Contessa? Well, maybe there's some finally a connection here because here on the Las Vegas Strip, the biggest operators, MGM and Caesars, are still seeing blowout crowds. The Nevada gaming revenue numbers show the industry just had its best May ever following the best April ever. And now you're going to add in newly resumed international visitors and the convention business. Casino execs are optimistic. None of that has been reflected in the stock prices. Boyd, Red Rock, MGM, all way down this year. Caesars, down 56% year to date. Now, some of that reflects a persistent worry over the digital gaming business, especially sports betting and what it costs to open new markets and acquire new customers. That has been a challenge for Penn National Gaming as well, which spends less than its competitors on acquiring customers and has, of course, bricks and mortar casinos across the country. Penn down 40% in 2022. Bally's down 45%. Online gambling company DraftKings down 53%, though in the second quarter, sports betting revenue in the United States grew 75% compared to the same time period last year. That's according to the American Gaming Association. Now, Asia has also been a sore spot for MGM, but more so for Wynn and Las Vegas Sands, as Macau is plagued by China's COVID lockdowns. Singapore, however, has reopened. And if Macau follows the rebound trajectory of Las Vegas, the real question, Kelly, is 
when will those winning bets show up in the stock price? Right, because I get that sports betting had a bit of a pandemic revival, but then it didn't, but then it did. I don't know. Basically, the stocks were just new. They were overvalued, and so DraftKings is correcting, and that's fine. But the traditional casinos, we keep seeing strong numbers from the Vegas Strip, right? And, and what is really remarkable is that while you've started to see little hints that consumer discretionary spending has been under pressure with rising uh, inflation, in Las Vegas in particular, in at the Las Vegas Strip, that is not being reflected in occupancy numbers, in the room rates that they're able to charge right now. Wow. What you're still seeing is this insatiable demand for the experience. And while there may be softening in some other levels, uh, in the regionals, at the very lowest demographic, which isn't very profitable for the casinos anyway, you may see some some softening there, but you're not seeing it in general in Las Vegas. No, it's fascinating. It, it definitely adds up and yet doesn't for these uh, frustrated investors, at least for right now. Contessa, thank you very much. Our Contessa Brewer sure. in Las Vegas. Coming up, tomorrow's jobs report will be closely watched from Vegas to Wall Street to Washington. So far, the recent data points have been pretty firm, but one gauge is now showing signs of a slowdown. We have those details next. Welcome back to The Exchange. Jobless claims were around 235,000 last week, the highest level in about six months, but still low by historical standards. With the next Fed decision now less than three weeks away, everyone from policymakers to investors is keeping an eye out for any signs of a cooling labor market. And our unofficial jobs gauge here on The Exchange, monthly data from Recruiter.com, also indicates hiring is slowing. Joining me now to discuss is Evan Sohn. He is the chairman and CEO. Evan, it's great to have you back. Welcome. Uh, thanks so much, Kelly. Glad to be back. Well, all right. So let's get all the nitty gritty in this report. What are you what are you guys finding out there? So first off, our recruiter.com recruiter index declined from 3.5 to 3.2 in terms of overall recruiter sentiment. The most interesting in terms of the overall labor slowdown as we're talking about it is that we track how many open roles the recruiters in the survey are working on. Uh, last month, they were working on 22 roles, and that dropped to 16 in the June recruiter index. So a 27% decline in the number of roles that they're actually working on, which tells us that there's certainly a slow up in the hiring. Now, on the good side, we actually thought a bunch of months ago that the companies were overhiring, and we reported that on CNBC, that companies were really stocking up on employees uh, in terms of the overall supply chain. So we're I think we're seeing a, cor a correcting going on in terms of companies themselves uh, in terms of their overall hiring, but certainly a, a little bit of a slow up. One side note that's not a side note for a lot of people is a big slowdown in remote hiring and work. Is that right? Yeah, we saw that. We saw that uh, really uh, the in-person are really picking up again, um, but also compensation's up uh, in terms of the reason that people are both leaving jobs and the reason that people are taking jobs. So we're starting to saying, hey, look, I, I think a recession might be coming. Let's let's go find some more money to put into my pocket on a monthly basis. Huh. And in a weird way, the people's concern about recession could add to inflation expectations, which would make the Fed more hawkish, even though it's for the, you know, you know, see what I'm saying here. I'm wondering, you know, if we look at momentum, you're saying basically we're slowing from an overheated market to a, how would you describe it now? A, a healthy yeah. one, a strong one, a, a, a weak one? What is it? Yeah, I, I would say there, there are these two uh, two competing challenges that are happening. Right. On the one hand, we have almost two jobs, two open jobs for every person 
that's unemployed, right? So we have this incredible need to get people back into the labor market uh, in terms of W-2 full-time jobs. At the same time, we have a tightness uh, of talent tech. Uh, we're seeing that did not grow at all. That still remains the number one uh, industry for the recruiters in the recruiter index, but it's flat from May to June. Interesting, we saw sales roles actually pick up by about 9% from May to June. So we're certainly seeing areas where there's growth. Uh, obviously, talented tech is, is still going to be an area. Sales, healthcare, we're all up uh, month over month in terms of those roles themselves. But still, how do we change the dynamic that we get these a million plus open roles filled? And a lot of them are in the the higher volume oriented roles, the hospitality, the retail, et cetera. Does this report tell you we're going into recession? Uh, no, no, it doesn't. It tells us that companies are being more careful in terms of hiring. Um, look, 4.1 million people quit uh, in May, according to the uh, Bureau of Labor Statistics numbers. They're still quitting. Um, we're seeing that the candidates that the recruiters are interviewing uh, some 21% of them have had three jobs. So 21% of the recruiters reported that the candidates had three jobs in the last year. Wow. 40 really incredible. 44% reported that they had two jobs in the past year. Wow. So job mobility is, is going to continue. Uh, people are going to chase the jobs that are having more compensation. And I think companies need to better align how many roles they're attriting and how many they're hiring on a, on a monthly basis. And again, I, I think there was a lot of overhiring that happened earlier on in the year, and that's really what we're seeing. That's so interesting. And I, I guess the, the sort of point is we are seeing an uptick in, in layoff announcements and such, but you think labor, to quote Annette Markowska of Jeffries from yesterday, you think labor is still firmly in the driver's seat? Yeah, absolutely. I think talented labor, you know, we say this all the time, uh, everyone who wants a job uh, is more valuable today than they were two years ago. Uh, from the waiter uh, to the factory worker uh, to the Java developer, uh, everyone's more valuable because there's someone that wants to pay them more money. And we're seeing the wage inflation. And what was stopping people from leaving jobs was really what you just showed a second ago, this job mobility. Job mobility means that I don't have to stay in a job four years, five years anymore, like our grandparents told us we have to do. I could leave jobs much faster. There was a recent survey where I think uh, by uh, PwC that showed 25% or 20 to 25% of the people on their survey were planning to leave their job in 22. Now, this was not a survey done a year ago. This was done you know, a few months ago. So still in this looming recession, People are quitting their jobs to find better jobs. Yeah, it's a, it's a fascinating and timely read. Uh, we thank you so much for bringing it to us each month, Evan. Thanks so much, Kelly. Evan Sohn with Recruiter.com. Still ahead, delays, who cares? Pricey tickets, fine. Why Americans are shrugging off disruptions and higher prices and still traveling this summer. We have that report next. Welcome back, everybody. One more thing before we go. Got to talk about airline fares. The airline stocks well off their highs as this road to recovery has been hit by inflation and labor shortages. Despite all that, though, Americans still have an appetite for air travel. According to a new survey, Phil Abo joins us now with those results. Phil? Kelly, this story is all about time and money, which is important given how much airline tickets cost this, these days. Let's start first off with time. Typically, people book their trips eight to ten weeks in advance. Well, a new survey of OAG uh, by OAG of 1,400 travelers found that the number of months out where people are booking tickets has gone up dramatically. Over half say it's going to be perhaps up to six months out. And there are 11% of the people now who say, look, I'm doing it at least six months out. And international trips... They're up 14%. So you 
see the demand is there and people are willing to pay, even with airfares at a higher level right now. According to OAG, almost 80% of the people surveyed said, I'll pay $50 more than what I was expecting. 43% said they'd pay $100 more than what they thought. It's really once you go above that, that you start to see people say, uh-uh, I'm not going to pay that much. As you take a look at shares of Delta, the reason we're showing you Delta is that it reports its Q2 results next week. This will be our first snapshot into what the airlines are seeing for the rest of the summer, but more importantly, for post Labor Day, Kelly, that will be the real test of whether or not we see the demand that is out there, whether or not it continues. They should ask people how much more would they pay to be guaranteed they'll arrive on time. <laughs> but it would be pretty high. Yes. Uh, you look, I think people would pay more if they knew for sure they were going to get there. But there's too many variables out of the control of the airlines, especially when you factor in weather, traffic congestion, uh, going into certain air corridors or at airports. Yeah, and they're sort of blaming the FAA for certain things, and they're saying no, it's yep. because of pilots retiring. A lot of back and forth right now, uh, as we still saw a lot of cancellations and delays this weekend. Phil, we'll leave it there. Thanks so much. We appreciate it. You bet. Our Phil LeBeau. That does it for The Exchange, everybody. Power Lunch begins right now. You've been listening to The Exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day, same time, same place. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx.